We are in a series this summer called Navigating Life. How do I know God's will for my life? And we started out the series by talking about two bedrock principles. The, the most important things that we need to focus on in navigating life. The first is simply this principle, that what we do in our lives needs to fall within the boundaries of God's word. So when we're contemplating a decision, we need to make sure that that decision would fall within what the New Testament says is within God's revealed will. It doesn't fit within the commands of the New Testament and the principles of the New Testament. Does it align with what the New Testament teaches? The second basic fundamental principle is actually told to us in Ephesians chapter 5 is being God's will. And that is simply that we need, we're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 and Ephesians chapter 1 guarantees us that every Christian has the Spirit of God residing within us, but we don't always let the Spirit be in control. And so Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 18 says, don't get drunk with wine for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, don't allow alcohol to control you, allow the Spirit of God to control you. And we made this opening statement. If we are making decisions that fit within God's revealed will, as we find it in the commands and principles of the New Testament, and if we are yielding to the Spirit of God, allowing the Spirit of God to control us, we do not have to worry about missing God's will. We will be in the will of God. There's still a question that faces us, and that is, yeah, but how do I actually go about making decisions once I have determined that this would fit within God's revealed will? And so we talked about some other principles so far in our series. We talked about decision-making as husbands and wives, that the decisions that we make need to be made out of a sense of oneness, out of oneness as husband and wife, and decisions that need to promote oneness as husbands and wife. We talked about the need to seek wise and godly counsel in the decision-making process. We talked about the fact that sometimes we get so focused on the end of the process that we forget that God has a challenge to each of us as we navigate life, and that is to look for open doors. And as the New Testament talks about open doors, those are opportunities to talk about Jesus with the people around us. And it's so easy for us to be destination people that we forget that day in and day out, even as we're not maybe sure what decision we're supposed to be making in all areas of our life, every day we need to be looking for open doors to talk to people about Jesus. And then last week we talked about in the decision-making process, we need to seek peace from the Lord. If this decision fits within the boundaries of God's will, and if the Spirit of God is controlling my life, I don't have to worry about missing His will. I can 
use the mind that he has given me to process the decision. I can seek godly counsel. I can pray and ask for wisdom. I can work, if I'm married, work with my spouse and try to come to consensus what we believe is God's will in this. And ultimately, I need God's peace in that decision. If I don't have his peace, I shouldn't move forward. So those are the parameters that we've laid out for decision making as we navigate life. Starting today and for two more weeks following, I want us to put some flesh on this and actually talk about three major life decisions that people make and how to navigate life through those decisions. Today, we're going to talk about getting married and asking the question, who should I marry? Next week, we're going to talk about work. How do I know what God's will, what God's call is on your life and my life in a vocation? So we're going to talk about a biblical perspective on work. And then two weeks from next week, we're going to finish up talking about buying stuff. How do I know what God's will is for my life and when it comes to things? Should I buy this or not buy this? So looking at these life decisions that all of us make, how to navigate those situations within this framework that we've been laying out this summer. So today, we want to talk about marriage. How do I go about this awesome task of figuring out, is this God's will for me to marry this person or not. Now, to make a couple of introductory comments. First of all, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear that not everyone's going to marry. Not everyone wants to marry. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I wish everyone were like me, single. Because if you're single, you can devote more of your time and your energy to serving Jesus Christ than you can if you're married. But Paul goes on to explain that not everyone's wired like him. That some people desire to be married and need to be married. And he uh, has a high view of marriage. But not everyone will go through life married. Some choose not to. And it does free that person up to serve Jesus Christ with uh, a greater level of intensity and devotion. Some here today are married. And it's easy for us to say, well, why do I need to know this subject? Because I'm already married. Well, it's good for us all to think about these principles because most likely at some point in all of our lives, we have opportunity to help give some counsel to someone who's thinking through this most important decision of life. If I marry, how do I know who... I should marry. 17 years ago, I went to India. Never, I'd never been out of North America. And the first place I go was India. I'm still recovering. It blew my mind. I lived there for a month with five different families, mostly Hindus and a few Jain families. And one of the things that was very common as I lived in these different people's homes, and most of the homes were multi-generational, you'd have grandpa and grandma, mom and dad, and married kids all in the same household, is the older people were really concerned about marriage. 
And the reason why they were concerned about marriage is that the younger generations were kind of pushing aside their long-standing tradition of mom and dads arranging marriages for their children. And I had several older people say, oh, our kids are into this love marriage. And they kind of said that with disdain, this love marriage. It's, it's, it's not going to work. They need to do what we've always done. And some young people still had a modified version of that. They say, yeah, we let mom and dad kind of think they arrange it, but we have veto power. Well, that seems foreign to us here in the United States, doesn't it? We, most of us would say, man, am I glad I didn't have to have my mom and dad arrange my marriage. Look where I'd be. We, that, that doesn't, that seems scary to us to think about that. Sometimes today, couples go the other way, and moms and dads say, I don't want to be liable for this. Don't ask me. You figure it out. Well, fortunately, the Bible does not leave us helpless in this decision. The Bible helps give us God's blueprint for marriage, and it actually helps define some of these boundaries that we talk about. It helps define the fences For what God says, a young or an older Christian man or woman should be looking for as they navigate life and think about, should I marry this person? So the first place I want us to go to is all the way back to God's original blueprint. We looked at it a few weeks ago. I want to look at it from a little bit different perspective this morning to Genesis 2. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles. Back to Genesis 2. Remember in this creation account, we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. It's the in-breathing of God that instilled humanity with God's image. It's the in-breathing of God. It's God giving us life that makes us different from the rest of God's living creation. The inbreathing of God made us in his image. He's the one that gave us life with the ability to actually have relationship with him. In fact, in that relationship, God placed man in the garden of Eden. And we read in verse 15, then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And those two words are very special Hebrew words. In the first five books of the Old Testament, cultivate it and keep it. The words that are underneath those English words are used throughout those first five books to talk about serving the Lord. They are worship terms. And whatever Adam was supposed to do in the garden, in working in the garden, his work was viewed as serving the Lord. As God's representative on earth. In fact, we see in verses 19 and 20, one of the first things that man was to do was name the animals. And he did that representing God. Adam's naming animals. There's a male and a female animal here, a male and a female animal here, a male and a female animal here, but Adam's just a male. In fact, verse 18 tells us, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Everything in the creation account up to this point, there's been a phrase that's been repeated. And it was good. 
And it was good. And it was good. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 18. It says, it's not good. Man does not have a counterpart, someone suitable, someone of the same nature. So God makes Adam a helper. Now that's not a derogatory term. God uses that word five times in the Old Testament to refer to himself, that he is Israel's helper, that he comes along and undergirds them. He, he helps give them strength where they are weak. He helps fill in where they lack. And that's the concept that God said, I will make a helper for man to help complete him. So God, down in verse 21 we read, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. He took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here in verse 23, we find the principle that I want us to key in on this morning. And here's the principle. That the biblical model for marriage calls us to receive our spouse as God's provision. Notice in verse 23, the Lord brings the woman to man. He presents the woman to man. Man, this is my provision for you. I have created her for you. And what does Adam do? He accepts her. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see, this is God's plan. This is God's blueprint. And in God's model for marriage, we should view our spouse in the same way that my spouse, your spouse, or maybe the spouse that you're contemplating having is actually God's provision for you. Now that's critical. That's important for us to get our arms around it because this is God's plan. This is God's blueprint. I used to like to watch this show on television called House Hunters until I read an article about how it's actually made. On the show, you find this couple and say, hey, we want to buy a house. And they look at three different ones and they choose one. Well, in reality, at least in a lot of the times, they find a couple who's already bought a house and then they say, hey, do you have any friends that have a house that we could use in the show? And then they go and film those houses and then they make it look like they're still choosing which house they're going to live in and they've already made the decision. It's a show. I mean, the show is a show. It's like, I don't want to watch this. It's a show. Well, what's happening today in our culture is that marriage has kind of become a show. And people are leaving God out of it. Maybe... They decide after they've made their decision that, well, we'll get married at a church and then, you know, that'll kind of be a a nice stamp on it. Instead of recognizing that God's fingerprints are all over marriage, that God, this is God's blueprint. This is God's 
plan. And that when a man and a woman commit themselves to be husband and wife, this is a vow that they are making before God. And the principle we find here in Genesis 2 is that God wants us to view that spouse as his provision for us. That that spouse is the one that God created for me. And for your spouse, you're the one that God created for them. God provided that spouse. Now why is that significant? First of all, I want to say this. This is God's blueprint. But we can all in this room, maybe some are even experienced it, know that for, for many, marriage is a painful journey. And one of the reasons why it can be a painful journey is that people are not puppets on a string here in you know, on this earth. That God created us to be able to have a will and to make decisions. And sometimes people choose to disobey God and start living for self instead of for Him. And when we choose to disobey God, pain results. That pain that many experience in marriage does not negate God's blueprint for marriage. Because God's blueprint is for a man and a woman to come before God and recognize that this is the spouse that God has provided for me and now I am making a commitment that this is my life mate and I'm going to love this person and honor this person and we are going to serve you Lord together as an indissoluble unit that is God's blueprint now it's significant to recognize that that spouse is God's provision because that is God's plan that is God's provision and it's a covenant that we are coming before God in marriage to make that has everything to do with how we seek out this spouse. If it's God's plan and it's God's blueprint, then I need to ask God for help. That means that men and women who are contemplating marriage need to be seeking Him in the process. Praying, asking for wisdom, seeking the Spirit's filling through the process. Seeking godly counsel from others. And looking in that other person's life and say, do I see Jesus' life being replicated in and through them? And as my wife and I counseled our sons, we firmly believe, as husband and wife, that the purpose of dating or courting is to find a spouse Thus, we always encourage our children, there's no really category for just recreational dating somebody one-on-one exclusively. If you're entering into an exclusive dating relationship with one person and not dating other people, there's one reason to do that. To find out if this is God's choice for me for a spouse. And it may not be, but that's why we date. That's why we enter into courtship. So 
our first principle in, in this whole question of how do I navigate marriage is to recognize that marriage is God's design. That, that He's the one with the blueprint and His pattern, His model calls us to recognize our spouse as actually being God's provision for us for a spouse. Now having laid that foundation, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We alluded to this path, this chapter earlier. This is the chapter where the Apostle Paul is talking about the benefits of singleness and marriage. And he, he blessed his marriage. He, he realizes that not everyone can live a single life like he does. But he talks about the fact that if someone is unmarried, they have a greater potential for serving him. And he lifts up and honors singleness. Toward the end of the chapter, he talks about what happens if a person's spouse dies, passes away. And in verse 39, we read this. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So we see that Christians are free to marry whom they wish, but only in the Lord. So in a sense, we're asking the question, How do I know who I should marry? And the Apostle Paul says, marry who you want to marry. Except, stay within God's boundaries. And one of the boundaries that God shows us here through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is if a person is already a Christian, they are to marry another Christian. Now that's why... In my wife and I's scheme of things, as we taught our sons that the purpose of dating was to find a spouse, and since here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it tells us that people, a Christian should only marry another Christian, that's why we encourage our sons, while they didn't always listen to us, but we encourage them that the, God's pattern is best fulfilled by only entering into exclusive dating relationships with another Christian. But here, Paul says, hey, marry who you want to marry, but only in the Lord. It's it's a phrase similar to how the Apostle Paul would use the phrase, in Christ. It's the, the, the two people have this bond in the person of Jesus Christ. This summer, Barbara and I spent a few days in Door County, Wisconsin. Never been there. Heard a lot of people talk about it. So then, well, let's go experience Door County. And it's nice. It's a bunch of farm ground with a few little towns with restaurants in it. And uh, I had read online, and so I wanted to go to the White Gull Inn for breakfast. I like eating out, but I'm also very frugal. So I found the best time to eat out is breakfast. It's cheaper, and I love eating breakfast out. So we go to the White Gull Inn, and this place is famous for having... Cream cheese, Door County cherry stuffed French toast. And I'm excited. We also get to places early. Because when I'm on vacation, I don't like being around crowds of people. And I also hate waiting in lines. And so, go figure that. As patient of guys I am. But So, my dear wife always gets drugged with me by places uber early. We always get places early. And so, we get there early get a beautiful table right by the glass windows, get our Door County Cherry Cream Cheese Stuffed French Toast. They have awesome coffee at this place. It's just wonderful. 
We're just enjo- just leisurely enjoying our time together. And I notice this married couple out of the corner of my eye. And it starts dawning on me that they haven't spoke. In fact, I keep watching. They never talk. I watch some more. They never talk. In fact, the entire time, they never said one word to each other. And they were not communicating telepathically. I know they weren't. They just weren't talking at all. Not once. He had his paper, she had her phone, and they just, they, and I thought to myself, wow, I wonder what they have in common. You know what happens when we have a Christian, and we, we mentioned Romans chapter 8 verse 9, Ephesians 1 says, every Christian has the indwelling spirit of God. And that Christian chooses to marry someone who's not a Christian, That other person does not have the indwelling Spirit of God in their life. So one person has the Holy Spirit living in them. The other person doesn't. There's already, before they even say, I do, a major divide between that couple. Now, does it ever happen that someone who marries a non-Christian person, does that person ever become a Christian? You bet. Such a day of rejoicing. We have family friends that... Like 40 years into their marriage, the spouse became a Christian. It was exciting. It was a wonderful thing. But God's blueprint, when a couple has a choice, and sometimes one of the partners becomes a Christian after marriage has already taken place. But if we have a choice, and that's what we're talking about, having a choice, God's best is for a Christian to marry someone who's already a Christian. Doesn't mean that if we step outside of that, that the other person won't ever become a Christian. But God's best in when we have a choice is to say, hey, I'm going to marry this person. They're a Christian. And that's one of God's boundaries. That's one of the, the fences that we, that we find. Now I want to go to one other boundary that we find in the New Testament. And that's in 1 Peter 3. So in 1 Peter 3, We find not only if I'm a Christian and I'm trying to navigate life and say, who should I marry? I should marry another Christian. But we also need to marry someone who's not just a Christian, but someone who loves Jesus. I've always told my kids, when you're seeking a spouse, if you'd ask my sons, we talk about this way back into grade school. And we'd sit around the table and I'd say, okay... What's it mean to be a Christian? And we talk about that. What's the gospel? We talk about that. And they're like in fifth grade. And then I say, and who are you going to look for in a spouse? Well, and, and they learn, you know, well, I need to marry another Christian. And then I say, just a Christian? And no, dad, someone who loves Jesus. So we work on this clear back into grade school. Well, here in 1 Peter 3, that's what Peter's saying. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12, Peter's talking about examples of people who are yielded to Jesus Christ. And he comes to chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, and talks about yielded people to Jesus in marriage. And he first turns to, to women and says, Let your adornment not merely be braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Women, don't just be focused on your outward appearance. 
Rather, focus on your inner person. Adorn your inner person. A person who's yielded, a woman who's yielded to Jesus is going to put more emphasis on her heart than her outward appearance. Men, down at verse 7, what's a man look like who loves Jesus? A man who loves Jesus, according to Peter, is one that says, Husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. She's not as strong as you. She can't pull you up against the side of the wall and say, Listen, man, you're not listening to me. She's not, she's not stronger than you. So it says, live with her in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she's a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. A man who loves Jesus is going to treat a woman graciously and is going to honor her and lift her up. So Peter here is saying, you want to see someone who's yielded to Jesus in their life? Look for very practical things. In a woman, it's a woman who's more concerned about what she looks like on the inside than the outside. In a man, it's a guy who actually treats women with grace and honors them. That's what you look for. You know, one of the things that I think some Christians become guilty of is trying to over-spiritualize marriage. Peter here is not saying, women, try to look as bad as you can. And, and sometimes people head into marriage and say, okay, I don't really think you're attractive, but I know the scriptures say I'm supposed to love a woman as Christ loved the church, so I guess it's going to be you. That's not any way to head into marriage. I actually have some friends that the two of them got together and the guy said, nobody wants to marry me. And the girl said, well, nobody wants to marry me. And they said, well, I guess we might as well marry each other. And that's what they did. You know what? I always tell couples, you need to find the other person attractive. If they're not attractive physically to you now, they're not going to be after you get married. So there needs to be some attraction there. But what Peter is saying is, don't let all the emphasis be on the outside. A woman who loves Jesus is going to be more concerned about what she looks like on the inside than the outside. And a man who loves Jesus is going to demonstrate that by treating that woman with honor and grace. So we find here that the scripture does not leave us without guidance in this whole process. We don't have to enter into this with fear, but rather we follow what we've been saying. First of all, what are God's boundaries? What are his fences? Well, I know that I'm supposed to marry a Christian. And how the New Testament defines that is that the Bible is very clear on what is a Christian. A Christian is a person who believes, who's put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible is very clear that each and every one of us are sinners. We've all thought things. We've all done things that are contrary to who God is, who, that are disobedient to what he said is right and wrong in the Bible. And 
each and every one of us, because of our sins, stands separated from God. It's as if God's over here and all the rest of us are over here and our sin keeps us from God. And God is completely righteous. He's right. He's the right standard. And He's holy. There's no imperfection in Him. There's no sin in Him at all. He can't just say, well, I'm going to forget about sin. It would violate His character. So our sin has to be punished because we have a Creator God who has the right to demand of us Holiness. We're his creation. And so he has to punish sin because of who he is. If he didn't punish sin, he would not be a right God. And so we're separated from him and we're over here. And the Bible tells us that we, in our separated state, have one thing waiting for us. And that's in a place called hell. A place of eternal torment. We deserve that because of our sin. But God's not only a right God and a just God, He's also a loving God. So what He did is He sent the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son, to earth, who lived a sinless life on earth, and then He died on the cross, paying all the penalty for all of our sin. In a sense, I deserve to die and spend eternity separated from God. Jesus died in my place. He bridged that gap between God and us. And the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2, there's one God and one mediator, one bridge between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. And when we put our trust in Him, when we believe that He is God and died on the cross and rose again, at that moment, His payment for sin is credited to the account of your life and my life. And we are right with God. And we are what the Bible defines as a Christian. So that's one of God's fences. If I'm a Christian, I need to seek to marry another Christian. But Peter also encourages us, in God's blueprint for marriage, I want to marry a Christian, but I want to marry a Christian who loves Jesus. And so, and we're navigating life, and I'm, and I'm starting to date this person or court this person. It's not just enough that this person says that they're a Christian, and, and maybe they are, but I want to look for a Christian who's yielded to Jesus Christ, who loves Jesus Christ, who wants to live for Jesus Christ. And we can see that in really practical ways. Things like a woman who's more concerned about her inner person than her outer person. A man who treats women with grace and honor and dignity. And then we remember what the Apostle Paul said. You're free to marry who you want. But stay within God's boundaries. A life mate should be understood to be God's provision. And should be a person who loves Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word in the encouragement we find in it. Help us as we navigate life to be mindful of your designs, your blueprints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.